This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Thank you very much. Good evening. Welcome to the Rand Washington office. Uh, I'm Nick Berger. I'm the director of the Washington office and an economist, a researcher here at Rand. And on behalf of everyone at Rand, I'm, I'm really delighted to welcome you to our office this evening and to our event this evening. We're so glad that you've joined us for what um, I'm confident will be a great discussion about Rand's Truth Decay Initiative. We are celebrating our 70th anniversary at RAND this year, and any of the alumni in the room know that very well. From its early days in 1948, the RAND Corporation has been a fiercely nonpartisan uh, and committed to helping improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis, independent of uh, political and commercial pressures. We aspire to have a positive impact on the world by applying rigorous and objective analysis to challenging problems across a wide range of field, everything from health to education, justice, national security, international affairs, public safety, science and technology, and cyber and data sciences. And that aspiration has really guided RAND since it was established. Our core values of quality and objectivity are at the heart of our efforts to combat truth decay. Although truth decay is not an entirely new phenomenon, we believe that the threat it poses to democracy is particularly dangerous today. Our fellow citizens have become increasingly unable to agree on a set of objective facts, and many have grown deeply mistrustful of foundational institutions like the government or like the media. To me, this means that Rand's approach to problem solving is needed more now than it has been ever before. And Rand is committed to helping to restore the central role of facts and data in public life. We could not do this without the generous support of our donors. Philanthropy has become increasingly important to Rand's ability to deliver objective, actionable solutions to the world's biggest problems. And so I'd like to say a big thank you to the donors that are here with us this evening. Rand President and CEO Michael Rich often points out that the projects Rand undertakes with donor support frequently produce the greatest impact and generate the most interest. Your support enables Rand to reach beyond the scope of our client-sponsored research and to take the long view on often controversial topics such as truth decay. For those of you already contributing to Rand, I hope you'll leave tonight feeling proud of the research that you've helped make possible on this critical issue. There's been a tremendous amount of interest in our truth decay work from scholars, from the media, from business leaders, and from our elected representatives who are paying attention to the work Rand is doing on this topic. Briefly, we are very fortunate to have Jennifer Cavanaugh here tonight with us. With Michael Rich, she is the co-author of the book Truth Decay, an initial exploration of the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life. She's a political scientist here at RAND, one of my colleagues, and the Associate Director of the Strategy, Doctrine, and Resources Program at the RAND Royal Center. She's also a faculty member at the Party RAND Graduate School. 
The Pew Research Center shares our concerns about the changing role of truth and facts in society and is studying public attitudes to these issues through its Trust, Facts, and Democracy project. We're privileged that Carol Doherty, as Director of Political Research at Pew, is joining us this evening. Before joining the Pew Research Center, he was a journalist covering congressional leadership, politics, and foreign affairs as a senior writer for Congressional Quarterly and serving as an off-air investigative reporter for CBS News on foreign affairs. So an incredibly relevant background, past and present. And our moderator this evening is Wynne Burkle, Vice President of RAND's Office of External Affairs. Um, and now, please join me in welcoming Jennifer Carroll and Wynn to the stage. Great. Thank you all for being here. Um, uh, I, I'm really honored to be able to uh, moderate this discussion uh, because uh, both the work of Rand with Truth Decay as well as the fantastic work uh, that Carol and his colleagues over at Pew Research Center have done on this topic are just really fantastic, really in-depth, have fantastic insights. I recommend them to you both. Um, I wanted to uh, read you just two things, because what I think is interesting about the relationship between the bodies of work that have been done at the two institutions, and I'll let them talk a little bit further about them, are, are really interesting. If uh, I'll read you one, uh, Michael, is it Demock? Demock. Demock, thank you, um, who was writing about the Trust Facts and Democracy Project, um, at Pew Research wrote, um, around the globe, we're experiencing a confluence of forces, most notably the growing, growing political polarization, revived nationalism, fractured media, and the ever accelerating pace of technological change that are challenging the essential role that trust and facts play in a democratic society. It seems like every week we are seeing fresh evidence that the anchors of uh, democratic governance are under stress. Public confidence in the responsiveness, accountability, and effectiveness of elected institutions has been mired at historic lows for more than a decade. Um, and then uh, when I, I looked uh, at the Truth Decay book, and if you look at the back of the book, it has a fantastic description, sort of a summary of the book. There, there was lots of overlaps. Over the past two decades, uh, the authors write, national political and civil discourse in the United States has been characterized by truth decay, defined as four, a set of four interrelated trends, which Jennifer will go into in just a moment. These trends have many causes, and the report looks into four of them. Um, but the most damaging consequences of truth decay, they write, include the erosion of civil discourse, political paralysis, alienation, and disengagement of individuals from political and civic institutions, and uncertainty over national policy. There was a just a ton of overlap between the two works about why this was uh, a real problem and the need to look into this further to uh, to understand that. So just to kick off, um, Carol, I wanted to get a sense from you. Could you give a little sense of the work that you uh, and your colleagues have, have done on this, the importance, why you got into it? Well, I mean, the first thing I'd like to do is salute Jennifer and Rand. I mean, I think this is, I've, I reviewed the, the work, um, Truth Decay, and I think it's a fabulous piece of work. I mean, I just think it's, it, it, it's really amazing. And I, I really appreciate the fact that you've uh, laid out a, a, a kind of roadmap for future research. And it's, you know, there's a lot of humility and transparency to it, which, which we at Pew really appreciate. Um, I'm just going to make a few remarks about some of the work we've done and how it overlaps with Rand's work. I mean, you know, it's, 
you've provided a roadmap for future research and, and it, it, the, the trust, the, the facts issue and the truth decay issue is related to tonight's topic, which is trust, which we've done a lot of work on. And um, I don't know whether you all of us in the sort of the government political science community have looked at this long graph of trust in government. And the quest, the original question was, how often uh, can you can you trust the government in Washington to do the right thing? Just about, and the percentage we focus on is just about always or most of the time. And it was as high as sixty percent. And majorities in the nineteen sixties and fifties said this. And in our most recent reading, uh, which was last December, it was eighteen percent. Wow. And um, there are a lot of causes for this, um, but the one I'd like to to focus on a little bit tonight before I, I pass it over to Jennifer is just how our political divisions have played into this. I mean, we at Pew have also really been studying political polarization for a while and uh, for the last several years, in fact. And we've seen this, the, the nature of this change. Now, the idea that there are political divisions in our society goes back to its founding, of course. But the, but the nature and the extent and, and the kind of degree of this has changed a good deal over the past 20 years, as, as my boss, Mike Demick, has said. I mean, it's gotten more personal, it's gotten deeper, and it's gotten more more negative. By that, I mean the share of people, the share of Democrats who don't just have an unfavorable view of the Republican Party, but have a very unfavorable view, has tripled over the past 20 years. And it seems true of Republicans viewing the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And so we, a couple of years ago, wanted to investigate this further. We found that it's not just the parties, it's the people in the parties. Uh, you know, close to half of all Republicans say that Democrats, not the Democratic Party, but Democrats mm-hmm. are immoral, lazy, dishonest, more dishonest and more lazy than than other Americans. 70% of Democrats say that uh, Republicans are more closed-minded than other Americans. And and so, you know, this is again not the party but the people. So what so what are the consequences of this in American politics? Well, you you can't you can't have a compromise with somebody you feel so negatively mm-hmm. about. It leads to distrust. It's 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 part of part of distrusting institutions. I mean, we now have a president who obviously is more polarizing than any president we've seen in terms of his uh, ratings, job ratings. But it goes deeper than that. We, we've been asking a question about trust, trust in the president. Is, is the president trustworthy? Uh, you know, Republicans didn't have didn't give uh, uh, President Obama very high high marks in this regard. About fifteen percent by the end of his his presidency. Well, today seven percent of Democrats find President Trump trustworthy. It gets lower for each president. And so, when you look back at this graphic of trust in government, that's not a new phenomenon. You know, it's been around, low trust has been around for quite a while. I mean, it's not been higher than 30% in, say, a decade. And so, is this a new normal? Well, it would appear so. But I would, I would say, and Jennifer's going to talk a little bit about history. When I talk, think about the consequences of this, I think about two recent historical events. 
And one of the things that we forget about the 9-11 tragedy was, you know, the 9-11 attacks were how it brought the country together. And it came through in all of our data, whether it be trust in government, trust in media, trust in religious organizations, trust in all national institutions skyrocketed. We came together as a nation after 9-11. It didn't last for very long, but it was a collective effort, a unified effort. Now, flash forward seven years to the financial crisis. It, it, it was an opposite reaction. It, it, it undermined trust. There was little trust in experts. There was little trust by many, in, by many people in what the government was saying and what needed to be done. As you may remember, President Bush had a, had a very hard time getting through the financial bailout package that a lot of financial experts were saying were needed. Trust at that time plummeted in national institutions, business corporations, naturally, the government itself. And so when we when we go forward, we're looking at the implications of this. As the Rand, uh, the video you just saw pointed out, this sort of distrust uh, prevents the nation from from addressing national problems. But when I think about it, I think about what happens when the next crisis comes. Mm -hmm. And what's going to happen then in this era of low trust? Because the Trump era so far has been remarkably free of crisis. The economy is doing pretty well. There's been, a, there's not have been really any major, uh, overseas crises, uh, you know, and, and so when I look at this and I, and I spin it forward, I look, and I look at this polarized environment and the mistrust we have for each other. Um, I think about, you know, how will the nation come together to handle the next crisis? Yeah. Thank you, Carol. Uh -huh. uh, Jennifer, uh, talk a little bit okay. about the work, Truth Take Care work, what it came out of, um, what the, the essence of it was. I, I know how important it was to you and Michael when you started mm -hmm. work on it. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Truth Take Care is something that Michael's been interested in for um, over a decade, since about 2005, he started to notice some of these trends emerging and he was concerned about it. Initially, he was concerned about it from Rand's perspective. If Rand is a research organization mm -hmm. whose uh, mission is to provide research and analysis to inform policymakers and po uh, research and analysis no longer matters or is increasingly disregarded, that presents an organizational challenge. But as the trends emerged and became more severe, uh, it became really clear that the most serious implications of this weren't necessarily for RAND, but for our democracy. And so when we started this project, we really wanted to help move the discussion and debate about this topic forward. And the debate had um, was going on. There were many people talking about this, yeah. talking about fake news, talking about post-truth politics. But there were a couple of um, roadblocks to having a productive debate about this topic. The first was there was no taxonomy or framework to discuss it. There was no unified set of terms. So some people were using one set of terms. Some people were using a different set of terms. Sometimes people were using the same words to mean different things. So one thing that we wanted to do was lay out a framework and a taxonomy that we could use to discuss and talk about and research this problem going forward. The second issue was that the research was really stovepiped. So people were looking at the role of the media or mm -hmm. the role of polarization without thinking about the interconnections and thinking about this as a holistic systemic challenge. So that's the second thing we wanted to mm -hmm. do. And the third thing we wanted to do was to, to take the debate outside of the partisan context, outside of the of the boundaries of our polarized political climate and have uh, an objective and nonpartisan um, discussion about what this phenomena is and where it's coming from. If it's, if it's a systemic phenomena, then it's probably not linked to one party or the other party. It's probably something deeper that's going on. And so that's what led us to the way that we approached the project. Um, 
So the way that we defined truth decay, as you saw in the video, was as comprising four specific trends. The first is increasing disagreement about basic facts. The second is a blurring of the line between facts and opinion. So I think we can all think of examples of that on uh, social media or cable news, anywhere where facts and opinions are presented interchangeably. So it's really mm -hmm. difficult to tell what is a fact and what's not. Uh, the third trend is an increasing volume of opinion that drowns out facts. So if even if you're looking for facts, sometimes it can be really difficult because there's so much mis- and disinformation. And then the last one, which is the one that we're focusing on tonight, is this um, declining trust in institutions that used to be looked to as sources of factual information, such as the media and the government. And the reason that that trend specifically is really important to this problem is because we have a situation in which not only is it really difficult to figure out what's a fact and what's not, what's true and what's not, but people don't even know where to look um, or who to turn to to get that information because trust in these institutions where we used to look for this information, um, our trust that trust is now so low. Um, as um, Carol alluded to, we've seen similar uh, periods like this in the past. So we've had times when trust in institutions has declined significantly. So think about the 60s and 70s. Uh, there are a lot of similarities between um, the downward trend in trust in the media and the government. But the difference there is that the absolute level of trust was significantly higher than what we see today. And so that's important. So the next thing that we wanted to do was understand why this was happening. Uh, what were the what were the drivers of this broader phenomenon? And so we identified four. Um, the first is cognitive biases. There have always been characteristics mm -hmm. of the way we process information that makes us more likely to reject things that don't confirm what we already agree, that makes us heavily reliant on our friends and families um, and social networks when we're forming beliefs and attitudes, that allows anecdotes and um, emotional experiences to resonate much more strongly than um, factual data that you might read in a book. And so all of those things allow disinformation and false beliefs to um, be very uh, difficult to dislodge. Once someone holds um, an incorrect belief, it's really difficult to change their mind. The second are changes in the information system. And I think this this um, driver is really important for thinking about the, the reasons why trust in institutions are so low. So here we're talking about the increase in the volume and speed of information, um, social media and the rise of the Internet, uh, the increasing increasingly democratized access to information. Um, almost anyone can get almost any information that they want at almost any time. Um, and that's a good thing, but it also creates challenges for um, for quality. It also means that our institutions are playing a different role. We used to need the media and the government to filter information to provide it to us because we couldn't get it directly. Now we can. And so it's, and that's a good thing, but it also changes our relationship with those institutions and our expectations of what they should be doing. Sometimes having more information about what an institution is doing isn't necessarily a good thing. The more we know, on the one hand, that's good because it gives us transparency. On the other hand, the more we know, we see kind of the, the ugly side, the things that undermine our trust. And so there's that tension there. The third driver that we looked at was the education system. In, uh, technology changes quickly, so the demands of the information space are changing really fast, but institutions like schools change really slowly. And so what we've seen is a gap between the skills that students are provided in schools to navigate this information system and the demands of that information system. And that makes people, young people and adults who didn't receive this training in school either, um, uh, makes them much more susceptible to this problem. 
And then the fourth driver is exactly what Carol mentioned previously, polarization. And not just political polarization, but social and demographic polarization. And Carol mentioned the fact that polarization seems so much, um, seems worse now. And part of that is the extent to which it's reinforced by social and demographic polarization. So we, we end up living, working, going to school with, doing recreational activities with people who have very similar beliefs to us, um, political beliefs, religious beliefs, um, values. And so that, that, um, the extent to which these boundaries are reinforcing, uh, really drives us into our own camps and allows these, these narratives to, to really thrive. And it has implications for trust, just as Carol, um, alluded to. Um, and it has implications for how we rebuild trust in institutions, because if it's not just characteristics of the institution, but something about who mm-hmm. is in control of those institutions, that's a much more fundamental mm-hmm. problem. Um, the final thing that we did in this report was to think about what are the consequences. Um, the most severe consequences that we focused on were the ones that had implications for our democracy. So we th- um, erosion of civil discourse. By that, we mean uh, the inability to have a meaningful discussion across identity group lines. Um, and a meaningful discussion doesn't have to be mean that we agree, but it means that we're able to um, approach a, an, an issue and, on which we disagree and have a meaningful dialogue about it um, with an open mind and recognize that we may never agree, but we can still respect that person and their opinion. Mm-hmm. We don't see those conversations happening as much. And that's true both also of our political uh, arena. Um, and that's a problem because when our policymakers don't have a shared set of facts on which to uh, that they start from this shared set of facts, it becomes difficult for them to debate policy options, to think about pros and cons, and to reach a compromise. So we end up with political stalemate. The third consequence that we talked about um, is probably the most dangerous, and that's declining civic engagement. Uh, there's a there's a tendency um, based on our analysis for people to turn away from political and media institutions when they feel when they when there's such high levels of distrust they just kind of check out um, and that doesn't mean just not voting it can also mean um, feeling alienated or feeling like it doesn't matter if I vote I mean I'll go vote because I think it's important but the government doesn't really care what I think and that's a really dangerous attitude mm-hmm. because people don't feel invested um, and like they feel alienated from those institutions and then uncertainty, which affects policy decision-making as well as individual decision-making about things like whether to buy health care. Um, the, the final thing I'll say is that one thing that throughout each of these areas of research that we looked at that really jumped out at us was how much we don't know. Um, we don't know how much disinformation is out there. Um, and knowing the answers to all these remaining questions and collecting empirical data on them is really important to our search for solutions. It seems um, short-sighted to think, jump right to the solutions, which is where we want to go because we want to fix it without making sure that we have all the data to inform it. And so that's where we've gone now is to try to fill in these gaps so we can move things forward. That's great. Wonderful. Good. Uh, now that you both give us a sense of, of where this comes from, Carol, let me ask you, mm-hmm. do we know why? Um, you ask, you ask on a regular basis the American public questions. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the why is hard to figure out. Have you been able to tease out a little bit the trust, lack of trust in institutions or falling trust? What that comes from, what the why is? Well, well I mean, it, it's a complicated question because it varies across institutions. It depends <laughs> on the, what kind of institution. Even within the government space, which I study, I mean, you know, you see this this long term decline in trust in the federal government, but people people have a much more positive opinion of their local government. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And when you when you unpack views of the federal government, even people will say, oh, well, the, the X agency that does a good job. It's those agencies and government functions that get 
for want of a better word, dragged into this oh, deeply divisive political debate that right. we all see uh, that, that, that who, the, the trust in those institutions right. lowers. So it's a little bit more complicated. But I do think that, that the nature of our politics, the political divisions, has been a factor. I think to Jennifer's point, knowing a little bit more in other words, when you think back of the 60s and 70s, what, what did we experience? That was, that was the period when you see the line really start, start to, to prominent. And you had, you had the Vietnam War. You learned that the government, you know, I mean, the Pentagon Papers, it's a, it's a popular movie now. You know, we learned some secrets about our government that we didn't know before. That information arguably is a positive thing, but it also will have the effect of possibly lowering trust in government. Then on the heels of Vietnam, of course, you had Watergate, which uh, which was uh, probably the crowning blow, and it was it was unable to recover from that. So it's a complicated question okay. about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, did we uh, get into? Did you you and Michael get into a little bit of any of the of the whys on that? So I don't think that we have good empirical data on okay. that. And so that's okay. one of the things that we're working on now is we're, we conducted a survey through RAND's American Life Panel to ask mm -hmm. people what are the characteristics of institutions that uh, that drive their feelings of trust or distrust. Oh, great. Um, as well as when their feelings, when their, uh, when their level of trust changes, either increases or mm -hmm. decreases, what are the characteristics yeah. that are driving that? And so I think, you know, we're, we're still in the process of analyzing that data, but I think there are kind of four broad um, categories of factors that might matter. Mm -hmm. um, the first is characteristics of the individual. So mm -hmm. some people may be more trusting than other people, and that could be based on their partisan identity. So this is where the partisanship might come in. Mm -hmm. It could be based on um, their educational attainment or their economic background. So any sort of individual level sure. characteristic sure. of the person doing the trusting. Right. Um, the second is characteristics of the institution. Um, so uh, it could be that some people just don't trust democracy or they don't trust the way media works. They think that there's something fundamentally wrong with the institution. Hmm. We know from Carol's work that people have a that the government isn't living up to people's ideal ideals. Hmm. So they have a set of principles um, mm -hmm. that they, that they think the government should be uh, achieving and the government isn't doing that. So maybe that gap. So something yeah. about the institution. The third possibility is it's something about the people within the institution. So the representatives and Carol alluded to that too, the kind of like just complete distrust or dislike of representatives mm -hmm. from the opposite party. Mm -hmm. And the same could be two of journalists, like just complete distrust of journalists and their integrity mm -hmm. could drive this. And the fourth is the match between the individual and the institution. So is this institution giving me information I like or doing mm -hmm. things that I like? And so I think those are four possible areas mm -hmm. where we might find um, we might find that uh, the answer to this why question. And so that's what yeah. we're hoping to tease out with our data um, is which ones of these are the most important. Right. And does it matter? Does that vary by institution, which it probably does? Does it vary by individual, which it probably does? Mm. Uh, and what does that mean for what we should do about it? Interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll give yeah. you another concrete sure. case that we just studied. Um, one of the areas that it's, it's uh, is colleges and universities. We've oh, seen we've seen that's an interesting case study in a lot of ways because in terms um, of whether people trust them right, or like yeah. them, and, and the low trust is is driven almost exclusively by Republicans. 
Wow. And, you know, we saw a huge drop in the... In the is this a recent huge drop? This is in the past two years, Oh, no years. kidding, that, yeah. that recent. I mean, you always saw a gap in terms of higher ed colleges and sure. universities uh, with rep- Democrats being more uh-huh. favorable. But in the past two or three years especially, it's gotten wow. uh, more polarized. So we did a little exploration mm-hmm. of that, and, and uh, some other uh, polling organizations have, have, have uh, asked about it. Uh, the primary reason is is the, the, the what Republicans see is the liberal uh, tilt of colleges and universities, the the idea that that free speech is being restricted, liberal professors, things like that. But one of the interesting things we found was that uh, Republicans still value higher education mm-hmm. personally. They see it as a path to a good job. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it gets very complicated mm-hmm. when you talk about trust and what it means. In this case, what, what it means is that in state legislatures, Republicans, uh, Republican representatives, Republican governors might say, let's, let's defund or cut back on funding for higher ed. It's not popular with my base. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have this sort of thing where Republican par- parents aren't sure. stopping sending their kids right, to college. Right. But it's having a policy impact in in many states, and so it's it's a it's a really interesting case study, and one we're going to explore further. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, that's great. Um, I wanted to uh, shift gears just for a moment here. One of the things that uh, Jennifer, I know in the report, I found really um, fantastic to sort of grasp onto because it was a study, your study of the historical analogs, which were in the video we saw earlier. Um, can you talk for a, for a moment, there are three periods where you looked and saw some analogous uh, characteristics. Um, and there was a, there was declining trust or lack of trust or reduction of trust in previously trusted sources of facts in each of those three periods. Could you talk a little bit about that? Put a little flesh on the on the bone here. Yeah. So one of the questions that we asked once we had the definition is, is truth decay new? And we thought that was an important question because it has real implications for how we respond to the problem. If it's not new, if it's something that we've seen before or that's always, ex- yeah. that always exists, then maybe we're just, um, it seems worse now because it's in our face more often. Um, but maybe it's not something to be concerned about. If it's totally new, well, that's interesting too. And we need to start from scratch. And if it's somewhere in between, then maybe there are lessons we can learn from the past. So what we did was we started with um, the post-Civil War period, and we tried to look from then to the present and identify periods that looked similar, meaning um, that they had evidence of one or more of these four trends that we identified um, as uh, as comprising truth decay. So we ended up with three, the 1880s to the 1890s, which was the Gilded Age um, time of uh, rapid urbanization, the rise of mass newspapers and yellow journalism, mm. um, the 1920s to 1930s, uh, Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression, the rise of radio, um, which in a lot of ways at that time was very similar to cable news. Um, and the 1960s to, ni- to the early 1970s, um, which again was a period of social unrest where you had rapid technological change, um, the rise of television as a major uh, platform for disseminating information. Um, so what we found was we see evidence of, of, of the two, the middle two trends. So blurring of the line between fact and opinion and an increasing volume of opinion in 
in all three of those periods. Mm-hmm. So in, we see it in yellow journalism, which were sensationalized stories um, included in newspapers to sell more newspapers. Yeah. We see it in the 20s and 30s, both in tabloid journalism and again in radio, um, powerful radio hosts who had uh, wide audiences, what they used to spread their views and opinions, which should right. sound very familiar. Not very factual. Um, not, yeah, not usually not factual. Yeah. Um, and then the 60s um, and 70s where television, although it was it was great in the sense that it gave more people access to information, mm-hmm. Also um, made it easier to manipulate information, much Mm. like social media does today. Social media is great, but it's also a powerful tool for spreading disinformation. Um, In terms of the trust in institutions, we see that in two of the two of those periods. So we see it in the 20s and 30s, primarily directed at big at banks and the government. And that makes sense because we see, um, Mm. you know, the banks just failed and the government's failing to actually deal with the problem. Um, And, you know, we end up in the Great Depression in the 60s and 70s. As I alluded to earlier, we see it in um, the government and the media. and, and, uh, you know, Carol alluded to Watergate and the Pentagon Papers, which were, um, reasons why. So there are legitimate yeah. reasons why it declined. The difference there, though, as I mentioned before, is the absolute level of trust, which is significantly higher in both of these periods, even though we see the downward trend. The big difference, oh, though, is we don't see that first, um, the first trend of truth decay, which is this increasing disagreement about objective facts. Mm. There's always been disagreement in American politics. Mm. That's not new. There have always been disagreements about opinions. But what we see now is Mm. people, um, even in areas where data and evidence is becoming stronger, um, people are becoming increasingly skeptical. So it's not just that their skepticism is staying the same, but we see those numbers like distrust in vaccines, distrust in GMOs, um, questions about climate change. Those things are actually increasing even as we get more data. And so that divergence is something that we were unable to find evidence of in the past. Interesting. Interesting. Great. Um, one of the things that, uh, one of the things that I think you both, uh, touched upon, uh, but it's a difficult question. So, uh, feel free to, to wave off on it, but what are we going to do about this? Um, or, oh, okay. Carol's pointing to Jennifer said, yeah, that's, that's, that's her. Or, or do we know what we're... I part of the deal. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't mention that to you before. I, I mean, one of the, uh, this is obviously, uh, Truth Decay is a fantastic exploratory study. And I know that mm-hmm. one of the fantastic things about it is you developed uh, a roadmap, a research agenda, as Carol mm-hmm. pointed out to her. Here's some places where it would be fruitful mm-hmm. for Rand or others. We're hoping others uh, participate in this and do research in these areas mm-hmm. to help fill in some of these mm-hmm. gaps. Um, do we have a sense of what we could do or what should we be researching to try and figure out what yeah. we could so, be doing? So I think there's... Um, I think our biggest conclusion was we need to know more. Like we need to know why people don't trust institutions. If we're going to decide, if we're going to figure out yeah. what we should do about it, we need to know how much disinformation there is and be able to track that over time okay. so that we can know how to respond to that. Yeah. So I think in terms of thinking about responses, we actually need to answer those questions first. But I think there are a few areas where it's, um, it's promising. Like I okay. think that we can maybe find, um, some traction and some of them have to do with trust in institutions and some of them don't. So okay. I'll start with the ones that don't. Sure. The first is the area of media literacy. Um, so part of the problem here is that um, adults and um, and children and young and young adults mm-hmm. um, don't necessarily have the skills they mm-hmm. need to navigate this complicated information system. Mm-hmm. And that means being able to evaluate sources, to uh, develop opinions and beliefs based on synthesizing many different sources, to understand and uh, be able to diagnose the bias of a given author sure, sure. and kind of factor that into their interpretation of that information. So those are skills that can be taught 
um, and it's not clear the extent to which they're currently being incorporated into curricula because we see actually declining time spent on things like social studies and civics mm. um, and some types of science education, like scientific method. And those are exactly the skills that we think that students probably need. Um, the caveat there is that even though there's a lot of energy in this space in terms yeah. of developing media literacy curricula, we don't have good evaluative evidence, um, meaning that we don't actually know whether these programs work and improve the outcomes we'd like mm. to improve. So that's one area. Mm. I think it's worth exploring what is the what is the type of media literacy curriculum? Um, what are the characteristics of good programs? Should right. it be standalone or incorporated into school sure. day, school? And what can we learn about how it works? So, so that's one we just area. don't know what's effective exactly yet. We, or so we should do more work to figure so that out. there's a little bit of evidence yeah. um, that suggests that certain types of curricula are more um are more effective than others, okay. especially curriculum that's woven into the school day. Oh, interesting. So the sense that it's not a standalone thing, sure. but it has to be a way of thinking, which is very akin to research. Part on of the social thinking. studies, part of the English, part, part of, of the, the math. Yeah, part, part of the, the math. Yeah. Interesting. So that's one area. Hmm. Another area is thinking about what we should do to respond to disinformation. Um, and there's a number of different proposals out there, um, ranging from government regulation of some sort. And that could mean treating media companies more like newspapers and holding them liable mm. for false information mm. or treating social media companies like utilities um, mm. uh, and 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 uh, using that regulatory framework mm. or providing incentives. Um, it doesn't have to be kind of the stick method. It could be the carrot. That's like right. here are incentives of things we can give you if you do a better job. Mm. The tech platforms could take initiatives uh, on their own mm. to deal with things like bots, either mm -hmm. labeling bots or removing bots completely. Mm. Um, and then there's things that third parties can do in terms of fact-checking or developing credibility rating scores. Um, and there's some interesting things going on in Europe and a lot of these places that I, even though our legal structure is different, I think we yeah. could learn from them. And then in terms of the, uh, the area of trust in institutions, which is what we're talking about now, I think this is area is one where um, understanding that why question is especially important sure. because yeah. it'll de determine whether we need to be targeting like individual beliefs or characteristics of the institution or characteristics of the representatives. Mm -hmm. Right. But I think things that are worth thinking about are like the level of transparency that's appropriate. I think uh, in in the media space, I think thinking about journalistic standards um, and the way ways in which those could be better communicated to the public. Mm. Um, those exist, and journalists, um, a large majority of journalists, hold firmly to them. Right. But there's not there's not like a licensing system like for mm. like um, mm -hmm. lawyers or doctors, so we don't necessarily have that signal. Mm. So is there a way that we could better communicate that signal? Mm. Um, what could we do to better um, illustrate or um, point out where what's a fact and what's an opinion to make it easier for readers to consume information that understand the difference, oh, maybe labeling the yeah. information or being clearer about sources. Right. So I think there are ways, at least in the media environment, that we could explore some options. Good. Carol, you want to take a crack at this? Uh, well, well <laughs> I, I will just say on this fact opinion question, we have something coming on that that'll be very interesting oh, about how well people can identify uh, uh, facts and opinions. And it's a it's kind of a preliminary research in, into that subject. Again, Great. a very complicated subject, merely trying to identify what is a fact these days. Yeah. It's not that easy. Yeah. Um, it, it, but it's it's going to be useful and, and shed some light Great. on this debate. And it's not that easy for anyone. Yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah. There, there are issues where I spend two hours just yeah. trying to figure out what the true story is. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, if, if that's... If that's what it takes someone who's engaged in these issues every exactly. day, then right. imagine if you just kind of check in once a week to politics or once a right. month or once a year, right. how right. hard it is to get no, this Exactly. Right. You know, there's a, a quote I was looking up the other day because I had heard that Winston Churchill had said, a lie goes halfway around the world 
before the truth has even put its boots on. I thought it was pants. Pants. And pants. It's all, well, <laughs> um, and ironically, that is not originally from Winston Churchill. That's, oh, it's a, not? that's a lie. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, it, it goes much farther back um, in, in history, but uh, I had to look that up to find out. And it's, it? uh, actually, it's very difficult to figure out who first said it. it goes back 200 years, at least 200 years before Winston Churchill. Uh, other people say it was Mark Twain. That's no, what I it thought. was it was before Mark Twain. And it's alternatively boots or pants. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, yes, you're actually absolutely right. Uh, trying to figure out what is fact and what is not uh, very, very difficult. Um Thank you both. All right. So let's open it up to you, the audience. Um, what questions might you have uh, for our panelists here? My name is Emmanuel Manolakas. I'm, I work at the Greek Embassy, and I, I, I had a question for you. You said something uh, about what is happening to Europe in Europe right now mm-hmm. um, towards media literacy. Do you have any more information on that? Well, it varies a lot by country, um, although there are some uh, like EU-wide thing uh, um, efforts. Um, so, you know, I think Italy has been the most active in this space in terms of making media literacy actually mandatory. So all schools have to teach it and having this, uh, you know, pretty rigorous curriculum. Um, mm. I don't think we know, again, whether or not it's improving outcomes. And again, it's not clear that standalone curricula um, are the best option, but certainly that's better than nothing. Um, and if you if you take a look at the um, the the European Commission report that just came out um, a couple months ago. Um, they they talk heavily about media literacy and the role that media literacy programs can play um, in in thinking about this. And so it's a space that I think um, there's a lot. Like as I said, there's a lot of energy and a lot of um, a lot of activity. Um, I don't know though that I think it would be difficult to have like a European wide uh, program. Right, it's going to have to be at the at the country level, which is. In the United States, a challenge because schools are mostly dictated at like the local level, so it has to be the local level. Um, so, so there are a lot of challenges, and it's not a panacea. It's not going to solve everything, but certainly it's part of the solution. And truth decay is such a complex problem here and in Europe that we're going to need multiple angles. Hi, good evening. Uh, one question I had was related to any attempt that you might be aware of to quantify the value of trust itself. So, for example, from the perspective maybe of banking institutions and really with an eye toward so what? Because it seems to me that there could be that sort of a reaction from the public if they're uninformed about this in general. Why do we care about trust and why does it matter? That's a, that's a great question. Yeah, really I think, I, I you know, Again, reflecting in, in my area of politics, um, this this 70 year track we have on trust in government. So it's low. And we, by the way, it goes back to 1958. We don't know, you know, that where that line would have been in the in the 1940s or, or 1930s or 1840s. Um, and, and, you know, there's a there's a sort of debate about the meaning of that. Uh, finding in particular because, you know, the, the history of this country is that we are taught to be skeptical of government. Skepticism about government is kind of in the American DNA in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so is low trust merely a skepticism? I think to, to, to Jennifer's point, we see something a little bit more corrosive going on today. And, and the meaning of it in, in government politics terms, again, is the idea that you know, if Republicans and Democrats in particular have high levels of mistrust, they're simply 
no basis for compromise then on the important issues of the day. I mean, one of the, one of the statistics, we just did a big study of democracy in the political system. And, and you know, as you might expect, Democrats, uh, very negative views of Republicans these days and President Trump. But they typically were always more, at least in principle, supportive of politicians who compromise than Republicans. You always saw a gap in those views. Republicans a little less uh, favorable. Mm-hmm. The, the, the two way is, do you like uh, politicians who compromise? You'd rather have them stand on principle. Typically, the Republican view was stand on principle. This long predates President Trump and Democrats were more compromised. Not anymore. The share of Democrats who who uh, prefer the politician, the elected official who compromises, dropped 23 points in the past year. Wow. Uh, and so now they're right even with Republicans, both below 50. And so what that means is the basis among the rank and file, support for the rank among the rank and file in each party, about equivalent and not very much for, for political compromise, is in part because of this distrust uh, of the other side. Hmm. We do have some measures that allow us to evaluate the um, quantitatively measure the implications of that failure to compromise. Um, so, for example, you know, we've done some work at RAND trying to estimate the costs of um, polarization. And um, if you look at the cost of, say, a government shutdown because of, of a failure to compromise or reach an agreement there, um, the costs of the 2013 shutdown are estimated to be on the order of 15 to 20 billion dollars in lost G- GDP. And that's a low end estimate because it doesn't include second order effects or contractor costs. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, uh, another area where, where we see political paralysis having a big impact is on judicial um, appointments and um, uh, you know getting them into their seats and actually doing their jobs and those delays have significant implications because there's often money tied up that can't be used so in, or invested more productively so the estimates are something like 3.3 billion dollars per year in lost GDP um, so I mean that's a significant cost there's a lot of things we could do with that money other than waste it and you can also think about the effect on businesses of uncertainty so uncertainty is another um, another consequence of truth decay that we identify. We know from past research that in election years, businesses tend to defer investment because it's an uncertain period and they don't um, they don't want to invest in that climate. So now imagine that every year is uncertain like an election year because we don't have good data. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what the policymakers mm-hmm. are going to do today. We don't know if what they said yesterday is actually going to be true tomorrow mm-hmm. because we distrust them. So if every year is like an election year, then businesses will make like long-term investment change in changes in how they invest their money, which will again have implications. So I do think that there are these quantitative effects and you're right that one of the things that we hope to do is for each of our consequence co- consequences in the truth decay report, be able to measure it and p- put metrics on it. Because if people don't see how it touches their life, it's hard to motivate them to understand why it's important that they matter. And that's a key part of solving this problem. Um, we can, um, we can do things at, at the top-down level. We can make changes at the institutional level. We can um, uh, use media literacy curricula. We can regulate uh, uh, social media. But if people aren't willing to look for facts and don't care, um, it's difficult to see how we get to a solution without that. Hi, I'm Ellie Wine with Rand. I, I'm wondering if in your research you found the truth decay and the inability to converge on facts. Did they... Did your research establish that they're sort of uniform across issues, or are there particular issues for which an inability to agree on facts and, and truth to care are more pronounced? I think that there are issues um, that are more pronounced. Um, 
I think there are a lot of scientific issues where this did where this disagreement disagreement manifests. Um, one interesting thing that we point out in the report is that we really only see these disagreements about basic facts in this political and civil discourse realm. So about policy, public policy topics. And it's often in places where um, it's issues that are complicated and where mm-hmm. it may be difficult to understand um, the evidence that exists. Mm-hmm. So if you think about science, um, uh, it, for someone who hasn't been trained scientifically, it can be difficult to understand um interpret levels of certainty or interpret um, technical research findings. So part of that problem is being better as researchers as in communicating our results. Um, But we don't see it in areas like sports, right? So baseball facts are more important, right? People are using them more and more. Businesses tend to use facts more heavily because if they don't, they lose money. Um, So there do do seem to be specific issue areas where um, this is worse. Um, And it does seem to be around things that have some complexity, um, but that's a question that actually that's in our research agenda is trying to figure out um, more quantitatively, can we quantify the level of disagreement and see how it varies across issue areas? I was wondering, do you think the fact that journalists only have, say, 600 words to flesh out a very complicated story, do you think it would make it harder for them to not have a specific direction towards the story and not to have a bias? You're a journalist, so. <laughs> there you go, Carol. No, I'd need at least a thousand. I think. <laughs> um, uh, no, no, it's. I think the. I think the media. Uh, it, it certainly when it comes to complex topics, um, the attention span of the media and the consumer is a factor. I mean, you know, it. It, it is. Uh, the issues we're we're confronting today are complicated and they are hard to uh, to discuss in 600 words or in a in a cryon on a cable channel or in a tweet or or anything else um again how to address that it's very it's it's very difficult because this is the world in which we live i mean there's a there's a there's a news organization now and and it's one where i have a lot of friends it's axios and they do they do good political research and there, in some ways, their business model is predicated on that. It's it's we're going to tell you in maybe 400 words or less everything you need to know about this issue today. And and it's it's successful because people are so strapped for time and they, they, they can't absorb everything, especially for an elite audience, especially for like D.C. policymakers. But I think it's 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 a problem because issues can't be addressed in 400 words, especially the issues we're dealing with today. I wanted to toss out a question. Um, Trust in institutions, is it a symptom or is it a (laughs) cause? I mean, I think uh, the question by the gentleman over here was interesting, which is who cares? Um, is, Is the trust in institutions actually really just, you know, the blind men and the elephant? Is just the rear hindquarters of the elephant and it's really a symptom of something much larger or is it a problem in amongst itself? Or is it both? I don't know. I think it's both. Yeah, I, I think because it has its own effects. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. So I, I mean, we define it as one of the four trends right. that mm-hmm. makes yep. up decay. Yeah. So in yeah. that sense, it's more of like a kind of a piece of the problem or a manifestation yep. of the problem. Um, but I think as we make clear in the report, there's like feedback and interactions between right, all these different right. factors. And we actually struggled with mm. where to put everything when we mm. were writing this. Um, and we're completely open to doing research in a year from now being having mm-hmm. to move things around. So I, you know, I do see it as, as part of this phenomenon, but also something that has its own drivers and its own effects um, that's worth studying on its own. Yeah. 
And going going back to that, you know, the consequences question, you know, we, we, we live in a kind of disaggregated environment now. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, we don't have the giant institutions, yep. you know, where we, we had in the 50s and 60s. I mean, it was it was a different different culture. Life life was different. And so how you build your trust is different today. And, yeah. and, and you know, that that can be, you know, bad or good. But I keep coming back to the consequence of you know we were i was at a at a european embassy the other night and and we were talking about you know kind of this these broad topics and they were saying well if we can't deal with the government in washington anymore um you know we will go to the states we will go to the mayors mm-hmm. we will get around mm-hmm. the the dysfunction of washington by dealing directly uh with states and and localities but of course the problem is that the federal government is still the most important right. actor in things like trade and tariffs yeah. and international right. relations, and you really can't avoid that. Right, right. Interesting. Jeff Hyde from RAND. Can you name any specific media outlets that are taking steps to be more factual or to do something to encourage media literacy? Well, I think I think the, the one of the phenomena we've seen over the last five, five, six years is the rise of the fact checker. I think that's one of the media trends we see, and it's whether it it, it itself has been criticized by some. Of course, it's gotten into the media maelstrom where some people call the fact checkers liberal, conservative, whatever, and it's been criticized. But that's been one step to attempt to fact check politicians now about media itself. You know, I, I, I think to Jennifer's point, there had one of the areas that, that, and this is just, I think I will express a personal opinion. I do believe that journalists themselves in social media do blur fact and opinion in a way that I do think can confuse people. I, I really do. And I think, you know, one of the things we do is is um, at Pew, at least, is we we try to stick to the facts. And that's really hard to do in the current environment mm-hmm. because there's so much opinion and so much pressure to give an opinion, so much pressure to go beyond the fact. Mm-hmm. OK, X percent of Americans believe this. What does it mean? Well, X percent of Americans believe this. And 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 uh, and so it's difficult. There's a great deal of pressure because of the business model, mer- journalism and everything else for the, for them to go further. And I think sometimes that causes the blurring. And I think social media has been a little bit of a uh, of a problem in that regard. Mm-hmm. And there's there's economic pressure for them to go further, yeah. too. Yeah. It sells papers when they can write something provocative, just selling a paper filled with like Reuters news wires isn't going to sell very, very many papers or get many clicks on the Internet. Um, but something that's provocative that weaves in interpretation and analysis and that's uh, tailors that interpretation and opinion to the political views of the audience that they're aiming at is going to get much higher um, uptake. Um, at the same time, you know, I do think that there are uh, media outlets that are concerned about this problem and that are trying to think about what they can do better um, in terms of providing information um, for users about uh, for different types of news stories, what actually goes into it. So the, the New York Times and the Washington Post do offer um, for like, if you're looking at this is a news analysis story versus this is a something else story, they could, they'll tell you if you go look for it, but you have to go look for it. So it's not something that um, is kind of automated in the sense that you'll, you'll get it no matter what. I mean, even Facebook is trying to get into the game. They, they released um, this 
kind of guide to read interpreting news with like 10 points of kind of like a um, best practices and reading journalism, like thinking about bias and things like that. So, you know, I do think that there, there is a lot of activity in the space. Um, but the question is, what's the best way to deliver that message? Um, and how do we get people to, to care about it? How do we get people to click on that link and click on that, um, go to the fact checker site and see whether that thing they read in the paper that made them mad is actually true. Um, so it's that, it's that like user initiative, um, that I think we have to think about. And so I, but I do think that there's opportunities there. Um, things like behavioral economics can tell us or teach us, um, how do we, how do we get people to do that? How do we induce people to take those steps? So thank you, Jennifer, Carol, and Wynn. That was terrific. Uh, thank you all so much for being here this evening, for joining us for the conversation, for your terrific questions. Um, we really appreciate the engagement. Uh, it's, it's terrific as researchers when we get to engage these kinds of ideas outside of our relatively narrower communities. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.